Don't forget we have some flyers back there for the conference coming up, and also uh, First Baptist is having a harvest festival, so you can avail yourself to that information. Turn over in your Bibles to Romans 13. We find ourselves down at verse 11. And I just want to read verse 11 through 14 for us this morning. This will be our text. Romans 13, beginning in verse 11. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify gratify its desire. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. I want to speak to you this morning on verse 11 out of this text. Understanding the present times, wake up. Some of you are yawning as I said that. Wake up. (laughs) As we've been going through Romans 13, we, we can see clearly that Paul's teachings parallel that of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, We've gone through Romans 12, we've gone through Romans 13, and Paul is really reflecting the teachings of Christ in what he says. A couple different references to this. Uh, The first one there is in your outline. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says that back in the text that we've gone through. And Jesus recounts that over in Matthew 22. That specific teaching of Christ is found in Matthew 22. And Paul also taught here in Romans, in verse 11 there, to understand the present time. Understand the present time. And he encourages us to live godly lives in this present time. This reminds us of the instruction of Jesus in Matthew 24, where he was giving the sermon uh, on the, the Mount of Olives there before his crucifixion. And it reminds us of Jesus' instructions to his disciples that understand these these present times in which you live. And then also Paul tells us to wake from our sleep or wake from our slumber, you might say. And this bears a remarkable likeness, resemblance to Jesus' parable of the five wise and five foolish women who were recorded in Matthew 25. You can count that. And so this week, maybe you can take a journey back into Matthew 22, 24, and 25 and compare those teachings for yourself and see what you find. I think you'll be amazed. But... Paul here is probably echoing, right, the teaching that Jesus himself had on these subjects. The Lord himself, as well as this great apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, the leading theologian of the early church, he combines these words to call each of us as believers to wake up, 
Are you awake this morning? I trust you are. Are you awake to your calling as a believer? Are you awake to your unique opportunities for service as a Christian? Are you using your time, the time that the Lord has granted you here on earth, to be a witness for him? So I want to talk about understanding the time this morning, understanding the times. In the first half there of Romans 13, verse 11, he begins... And he says, besides this, you know the time. You know the time. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 16, I just want to introduce this with a couple verses. Matthew 16 is one of them. The leaders of the people had come to Jesus and they asked him for a sign from heaven. And he replied by saying they already had been given general signs Miraculous signs, and their problem was that they would not understand the ones that they had. And then he used a popular saying similar to what we see here in Romans or Matthew 16, verses 1 to 3. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but look at what he says. But you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And then he goes on, and he says in verse 4, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah, So he left them and he departed. His point was that they could not interpret the signs of his coming. Don't even try. And a lot of theologians, a lot of commentaries actually, they'll take this section in Romans 13 that we're talking about. Where it says, besides this you know the time. And they go into this whole eschatology of future things. That's not what what Paul was talking about. That's why he says it hasn't died has in mind, understand this present time. Not some future thing. The time we live in right now. And the second passage I want to draw your attention to is not only Matthew 16, but 1 Chronicles chapter 12. Back in verse 32. It lists the warriors who came to David when he was the king of Hebron. Hebron, And and it, and it, it lists the men of Iskar. And they're described in verse 32 as those who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. So we have on one hand those who could not interpret the signs of the times, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And on the other hand, those who understood the times and knew exactly what they should be doing as Israel. And it's against that background that Paul really writes Romans 13 verse 11. When he tells us clearly there in the text, besides this, you know the time. You know the present time. Let me ask you, do you understand the times in which we live? If not, why not? If you do, if you're sitting there saying, oh yeah, I understand the times. Well, what are you doing about it? 
See, the bottom line is if we understand this present time in which we live, we will know what to do with our time. And we will do it if we're wise. So I want to give us a little understanding of this present time that he talks about here. And like I said, a lot of commentators go into the future eschatology. They get into Revelation. Oh, here's what's coming. That's not what Paul has in mind in Romans 13. Because he basically says, besides this, you know the time. Besides what I've just shared with you, you know, how important it is to love your God and love your neighbor and and respect those in authority over you, all these things. You know the time in which you live. The Greek words there say, in this knowing the time. Knowing the present time is the idea. And so the first thing I put down there is this present time is an evil time. If you look over at Galatians chapter 1, it kind of lays the groundwork there for us. Saying that Jesus himself, what's it say in, in verse 4? It says, gave himself for our sins to rescue us from what? This present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So this present age in which we live, beloved, is an evil one. Obviously, this verse is thinking about the world's time as a whole, all time, prior to the return of Jesus Christ in glory. That's what he's saying. And he's saying that it's an evil time out of which we have to be rescued. Out of which we must be saved. That's why God sent a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes I wonder if we really believe as believers, as Christians, those who are following Christ, if we really believe that, that this age is an evil age. Sometimes I think we think it's a rather nice time to live. We have all this technology, we live in a blessed country. Something to be enjoyed. Live in a beautiful part of the country. See, you're never going to make any progress, any true progress, in your character as a Christian and your wisdom as a Christian until you begin to realize that this world in which we live, this current age, is one that's described as being hostile to God. It's an evil age. It's opposed to any desires for godliness. On part of God's people. They don't welcome. Christian thought. They don't welcome Christian morality. Jesus said this very clearly in John chapter 15 verse 18 to 19. Listen to what he said. He told his disciples just before his arrest and crucifixion. He said don't be surprised if the world hates you. Know that it has hated me before it hated you, Jesus said. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, Jesus went on to say, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I've talked to believers sometimes, and they'll say to me, oh, I don't really believe that. I, You know, I kind of love the world. We got a problem. That's not what Scripture says. If the world loves you in the way you're living, all I have to say is, you know what? You're not living the Christian life as described in the Bible. 
Because that Christian life, the life that Christ called us to, will divide. Christ said that he came to bring a sword. The gospel of Christ divides family, friends, loved ones. Most of us have experienced that in our own lives. We're going to hear firsthand of how that plays out in somebody's life when Costi Hinn comes in a couple weeks at the Equip Conference the second weekend in November and shares his testimony, how he was saved gloriously out of that whole Word of Faith movement. Or in John chapter 15, verse, or John chapter 17, verse 15, he says this, he's praying and he says, I do not ask, Jesus is praying, that you take them out of the world. I mean, that would be the easy solution, right? I mean, that, I, mean I, I would kind of opt for that. You know, you come to Christ, you're saved, and boom, you're gone. You're just boing, you know, you got resurrected by, you're, you're in heaven, you're in glory. You don't have to deal with the sin, you don't have to deal with the struggle, you don't have to deal with all this stuff down here. But that's not what God did, because you know what? Ultimately, that wouldn't give him the most glory. What gives God the most glory is after we're saved and after we're transformed, after we've trusted in Christ and our sins have been forgiven, he says, you know what? I'm going to allow you to hang out a little while down there on earth because I want the righteousness that you now possess to be visible to everyone. I want to be glorified through your transformed life. And if I don't leave you there for some time, you know what? Nobody's going to know you changed. You're just going to be gone. But now you can testify to my power in your life. And so Jesus says, don't take them out of the world. I don't want that. But that you keep them from the evil one. And beloved, as Christians, trust me, we are kept from the evil one. He has no dominion, no power over over our lives whatsoever as believers unless God grants it to him. And if God grants it to him, then that's for his glory. What this means is that all cultures decline to the degree that they reject Christ. We see that in our own country, don't we? Think what our country was like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 100 years ago. And you see how morally it has collapsed. Why? Because they rejected Christ. And the moral the more they, they, they reject Christ, the more rapid the disintegration of a society. So we live in an evil time. Secondly, he kind of calls attention there, the Bible does, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Paul says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. In other words, although we do live in an evil age, it's nevertheless also an age in which God has accomplished our salvation. He's provided everything that we need to get through this evil age. And in Matthew 16, we read this verse 4. He says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no one will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. It's clear from the way that he had spoken of Jonah four chapters earlier that he was referring to his own death, his own resurrection. That's what Christ is speaking of there. And that is exactly the way the rest 
of Matthew 16 unfolds. You'll recall that right after this, and after warning his disciples of what he called the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, speaking of their teaching, Jesus asked his own disciples who the people thought he was. Do you remember how they replied? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked them, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And you remember Peter's answer. Peter answered for everybody. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, Jesus went on and explained how Peter's answer was correct and that it was something that he didn't come up with on his own, but it was something that had been revealed to him by God himself. In other words, he put his seal of approval on Peter's true answer, affirming that Peter and eventually the other disciples as well had interpreted the signs of the times correctly. I mean, they saw what Christ's ministry was like. They came to understand that he was the son of God. They, they believed on him. But see, salvation, the salvation that Jesus was bringing was not a salvation that would result in them being released from Roman captivity and Roman rule in their areas. But it was the way of the cross. At that time, Peter didn't understand it, neither did anybody else. But he did believe that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Messiah. But when Jesus went on to teach there in Matthew 16, verse 21, he says he must go to Jerusalem. And he said he has to suffer at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day he would be raised to life. What did Peter do? Peter lost all his credibility right there. He rebuked the Lord. He said, no, that's not going to happen. And Peter needed to be rebuked by Christ himself. Because he didn't understand that. See, if we're going to understand this present time in which we live, beloved, we have to understand that this is also a time marked out by the cross of Jesus Christ whom God sent to be our Savior. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, but when the fullness of time had come, what? God sent forth His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born under the law. Verse 5 says, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. At the right time, in the fullness of time, that happened. And so we see this Present age is an evil time. We see the sign of Jonah. But it's also a time to repent. It's a time to believe. And this third passage is found in Luke chapter 19. Turn over to Luke chapter 19, verses 41 and 44. This is taken a week before the death of our Lord, when Jesus was approaching Jerusalem. It says, when he saw it, he began to weep. Verse 41, and when he drew near 
and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would you that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace? But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. Verse 44, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. What Jesus meant here was that the people had been given time to repent. They'd been given time to repent of their sins and turn to him and be saved. But you know what? Unfortunately, they refused to do it. And as a result, the time of their opportunity was drawing to an end. That's what he wants them to see. And that's exactly the condition of our society today. Since the destruction of Jerusalem, which overtook the people of that city within a generation of Jesus' death and resurrection, that was a foretaste and a, a warning of the final judgment that is to come upon every member of our race. The Bible says very clearly, judgment will fall on you if you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. And he himself will be the judge. But here's the good news, beloved. Here's the message for us this morning, that today is the day of God's grace. Judgment has not yet come. The message for us here this morning is that we need to turn from our sin to the Savior. Perhaps this is the morning, right now, in the quietness of your own heart. You turn to Christ. You repent of your sin. Ask him for forgiveness. Because we live in a time to repent and believe. We also live in a time of gospel proclamation. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the first chapter of Acts, it's the very beginning, founding of the Christian church as we know it today. And the disciples asked Jesus in verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? See, they're still thinking, hey, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to raise us up to a mighty army and we're going to overrun the Roman rule and we're going to kick them out and we're going to take back the city and everything's going to be great. And they're thinking unbiblically. The Jews expected the Messiah to drive the Romans out who occupied their country to reestablish David's dynasty and the independent state of Israel. That's what they wanted from Christ. And they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. So they anticipated that he would fulfill that popular expectation. By the way, he will fulfill that one day. But this was not the place or the time. And he replies in verse 7 of Acts chapter 1. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive What? Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It's a time of gospel proclamation. 
See, the times in which we live, it tells us that it's not for us to sit around and try to calculate when Christ is coming back. It's not for us to, you know, hoard everything and then, you know, wait and, and go be a, you know, a, uh, what do they call those people? Huh? No. Yeah, survivalists. What's that show on TV? They have a show, uh, preppers. You know, we don't need to be a prepper. I mean, we should be prepared. Don't get me wrong. But you know what? Nothing we do is going to stop that, and we don't know when it's going to happen. See, it's really, Paul is trying to get us to see that we are to seek to lead others to faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. This is the time in which we live. It's not the time for us to merely make a bunch of money or to make a name for ourselves or try to become famous. Or enjoy your life. See, life is from God, the Bible says. And the time that you have and the time that I have has been given to us by God himself. And so our time is for Jesus. And history is about God calling people out of this present evil age to believe in him and also to live for him each and every day. And that's our role as believers. Our role is to live for Jesus and to witness for him as well. In Matthew chapter 18, this applies to all of us believers, verse 18 to 20. All authority is given in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey every command that I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. We are called to proclaim the gospel. Well, we also need to understand that our time is short. Our time is short. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29 Paul adds something there, and he's, he's really saying, basically, our time is short. What's that mean? If we're going to serve Jesus Christ, you better do it now. Because we don't have forever. And Paul develops that, that idea there. The hour has come for you to wake from your slumber, from your sleep, he says, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. What's that mean? It's pretty basic, right? I mean, we're closer to Christ now than we were when we first came to Christ. Well, when's that going to happen? We don't know. We don't know when Jesus will return. We don't know when we'll be caught up. But that can be applied to both believers and unbelievers. If you're an unbeliever here today, trust me, you're closer to the day of judgment than you have been your entire life. And God has granted you the grace to hear the gospel message, a message of repentance, a message that calls for you to turn from your sin and turn to the Savior. Well, why is our time short? Because the return of Jesus Christ is imminent. It's imminent. That's not looking at a calendar and saying, oh, that's what that means. It doesn't mean it's going to take place today or tomorrow. We don't know when it's going to take place. It doesn't mean it's immediate. It means that it could happen at any moment. It could happen right now. It could happen a minute from now. It could happen an hour from now. It could happen 10 years from now. 
We don't know. But trust me, it will happen. The Lord will return. And all those who have trusted in him for salvation will be caught up, the Bible says, to be with him forever. And those who have not will be left. Those who are not will have to face him as not their savior, but as their judge. The return of Christ is imminent. Trust me, if if you're a Christian here this morning, you better be ready to render account for what you have done with your talents and your opportunities when you face the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're wasting away all that God has entrusted to you, what a shame. If you're not a Christian, trust me, you will stand before God as judge. He will judge you. Secondly, the time when you must stand before Jesus Christ is close, either as your Savior or your judge. It's closer than it was yesterday. What are you going to hear on that day? We will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Or will you be ashamed to stand before him? If you're not a Christian here this morning, I pray that you're trembling before the almighty power of God. I pray that you will know no peace in your life until you have come to Christ. In Matthew 25, verse 30, Jesus says of that unbelieving person, he says, throw the worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a sign of judgment. Well, we need to redeem the time clearly. Paul indicates that in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16. He says, be careful then how you live, not as the unwise, but as wise, making the most, what? Of every opportunity. Why, Paul? Because the days are evil. The King James Version says, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Jonathan Edwards, an American Puritan, was well aware of how important time was. In his youth, before the age of 20, he wrote out as a personal resolution, never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Don't take time for granted. We may not have that much time left. And so Paul says there in Ephesians 5.16, he says, Consider, first of all, that you are accountable to God for your time. Your time is not your own. Time has been given to you as a gift by God. Time is is is, is as much as a talent as your other abilities and other attributes that he's given to you. Secondly, consider how much time you have lost already. Did you ever think about that? How much time we lose 
doing things that are unprofitable for the kingdom of God? Well, don't I have a right to relax? Sure you do. (laughs) But you know what? Time is precious. You might want to rethink that idea. Because if you knew that Christ was coming back at 4 o'clock this afternoon, what would you change? Would you just casually go home, turn on the tube, and watch the ball game? I pray that you'd be thinking of family members that need to hear the gospel. Pray that you'd be running out to neighbors that need to hear the gospel. That you would be proclaiming the precious gospel of Christ before his return at 4 p.m. I trust you wouldn't just go home and sit on your couch and and watch the tube for the afternoon and just, well, this is my relaxing time. If you've not been active in Christian service, you've wasted many, many precious moments, beloved. And you know what? Those moments can never, ever be made up, ever. You should make every effort to use the remaining time well. And then thirdly, consider how you may improve the present time in which you live without delay because we don't have a lot of time. You know, there's nothing you can do about the past. But you should at least make sure that you leave here this morning saying, you know what, I'm not going to repeat those errors I'm going to turn from my idleness. I'm going to turn from my sin. I'm going to turn from my unbelief. And I'm going to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and determine to follow him each and every moment. I'm going to witness for him. I'm going to proclaim the gospel to all and live the gospel before all. He says there that the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. He's sounding the gospel alarm. He's saying, you know what? You need to wake up. Why? He gives us four quick reasons. Because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. That's what Paul desires us to know. If you're a young person here this morning, it's easy to suppose that your life is long and you have lots of time left. You have lots of time to serve Jesus when you get older. There's no guarantee that you'll live through today, let alone to be 40 or 50 or 60. But if you do have a very long life, don't you want to use it serving the Lord Jesus Christ who saved you? Or do you just want to waste it? Forming a pattern of living for yourself rather than for God. you don't wake up and live for Jesus now, beloved, it's likely that you'll continue sleeping, continue sleeping even in your old age and die having done nothing of any value for the Lord Jesus Christ or his kingdom. I've always said this, there's no retirement for the Christian. You know, our society makes this big deal out of retirement. Save up all our money so then we finally have the golden years. We just do whatever we want, whenever we want. That's not Christian doctrine. That's not what Christ has called us to. As older people, you have a lot to share with younger people. 
a lot of insight, a lot of wisdom, a lot the Lord has taught you. Are you doing that? Are you investing in somebody else other than yourself? Paul is telling us to wake up. Even on his deathbed, young David Brainerd, a missionary to the American Indians and close friend of Jonathan Edwards, took time to teach young Indian boys to to read so they could read the Bible. Even while he was dying, that was such an important thing for him. I think our priorities are all messed up. Secondly, because you have no right to sleep when there's work to do. (laughs) You just don't have any right to do it. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, gave a sermon on Romans 13.11. And he explained why believers have no right to sleep. He showed that Christians have been rescued from death to be Christ's witnesses. And that they are called to be alert and working until Jesus comes. He developed a case from the ten virgins in Christ's parable about those ten virgins. And he said, when the five wise virgins went out to meet the bridegroom and took their lamps with them, what right had they to be asleep? I, he goes on, he says, I can very well understand those sleeping who had no oil in their vessels with, in their lamps. Because when their lamps went out, they would be in the dark, and darkness suggests sleep. But those who had their lamps well trimmed, should they go asleep in the light? Those that had the oil, should they go asleep while the oil was illuminating them? They needed to be awake to put the oil in the lamp. Besides, they had come out to meet the bridegroom. Could they meet him asleep? When he should come, when it be fit that he should find those who attended his wedding all asleep in a row, insulting, insulting his dignity and treating his glory with scorn, we might argue that if they had been awake, they might have been able to instruct and to help those other women who were not ready for the Lord's return and who were eventually shut out of the wedding banquet. I want to read a song to you by Keith Green. Great song. Look it up on the internet, but I'll just read it. I'm not going to sing it. I'll just read it. It's called Asleep in the Light. The song goes like this. Do you see? Do you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care? Don't you care? Are you going to let them drown? How can you be so numb? Not to care if they come. You close your eyes and pretend the job is done. Oh, bless me, Lord. Bless me, Lord. You know, it's all I ever hear. No one aches. No one hurts. No one even sheds one tear. But he cries. He weeps. He bleeds. And he cares for your needs. But you just lay back and keep soaking it in. Oh, can't you see it's such sin? Because he brings people to your door and you turn them away as you smile and say, God bless you. Be at peace. And all heaven just weeps because Jesus came to your door and you left him out on the streets. 
open up. Open up and give yourself away. You see the need. You hear the cries. So how can you delay? God is calling and you are the one. But like Jonah, you run. He told you to speak, but you keep holding it in. Oh, can't you see it? Such sin. The world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave and you, you can't even get out of bed. Jesus rose from the dead. Come on, get out of your bed. So Paul indicates that because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. But then also because you have no right to sleep when there's work to do. And now thirdly, he indicates that because we have many enemies who are awake and working even if we are not. Stop and think about that. This is a point that Spurgeon also makes pointing to the enemy who sowed the tares in the gospel field while everyone was sleeping in Matthew 13. He said, you may sleep, but you cannot induce the devil to close his eyes. You may see evangelicals asleep, but you will not find the ritualists slumbering. The prince of the power of the air keeps his servants well up to their work. It is not a strange thing that the servants of the Lord often serve him at a poor, cold, dead, alive rate. Oh, may the Lord quicken us. If we could with a glance see the activities of the servants of Satan, we should be astonished at our own sluggishness. It was Secretary of State Robert McNamara in time of war, said this, when we are sleeping, the other two-thirds of the world is awake and up to some mischief. That is so true. If we understood that our enemies, the enemies of the gospel, are always awake, wouldn't we more, be more alert in opposing them and speaking up for Jesus? Well, then fourthly, We need to sound the gospel alarm, fourthly, because there is something worth waking up for. I'm told that one of the hardest things in the prisons around our country is that so many prisoners fall into what the wardens call the prisoner's shuffle. They move at the slowest possible speed. And that many who are in prison spend long hours in their beds trying to sleep the lengthy years of their sentences away. It's sad, but it's understandable. It's understandable because they're in a place where they have no hope. They have nothing to live for. But that's not our case, beloved. We have meaningful work to do. We have the task of telling men and women and children of the Savior, who if they believe on him, will lift them out of the darkness into light and out of death 
into life. Moreover, that life is an eternal life. So that the fruit of what we are given to do as Christians is eternal. Those who are saved through our witness will be in heaven with God forever. They will be part of that everlasting chorus that will be praising God forever. Even our good works that we do in the name of Christ will be remembered before God forever. The Bible clearly teaches this. This not even a cup of water given to a thirsty person in Christ's name will be forgotten. What else in all of our lives is like that? Everything else is going to pass away. It will perish. So why do we live for things that perish? I challenge you here this morning to live for Christ, to live for God, to live for the eternal. The Bible says in 1 John 2, 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Our text is telling us here this morning, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. Or as the King James Version says, it is high time to wake up. And so it is. Lord, we pray this morning that you would quicken our hearts to understand and to comprehend the words that we have heard. And Lord, I pray that you would prepare the hearts of the people gathered here to hear the words of this short video taken from one of Dr. Stephen Lawson's messages on the subject of the cost factor. I pray, Lord, that you would draw men and women to yourself through your power. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please consider the words as we view this video together. You need to weigh in on the cost factor and count the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It will cost you popularity. It will cost you promotion perhaps at times. It will cost you an easy life. You will have to discipline yourself. You will have to buffet your body. You will have to say no to temptation. You will have to say no to this world. You will have to break with the crowd. You will have to be willing to stand alone for Christ. You will have to be willing to walk to the beat of a different drummer and to, to step out of the crowd even if no one follows after Jesus Christ. You'd be willing to stand if you're the only person in the world for Jesus Christ. That's the cost factor. You would have to be willing to suffer persecution for Christ. And let me tell you, it will come. It might even cost you your life. He is not coming to play games. He is not coming to be docile. He is coming to dominate and he is coming to slaughter. He is the King of kings, and He is the Lord of lords. And at the end of this age, He will bolt out of heaven on a white steed, and His garments are dripped in blood, the blood of His own enemies, and He is coming back to conquer and to damn. You need to make terms of peace with this coming king or you will be subjected in damnation forever.
Jesus Christ has made terms of peace. You need to settle out of court with Him. You do not want to go into that final day of conflict with Christ. For He will be ruthless in the execution of His justice. But He offers you mercy today. He will agree to terms of surrender. He will agree to terms of peace. But they are His terms of peace, not ours. And His terms of peace are very simply this. You must hate your own father and mother and brother and sister and even your own life more than me or you cannot be my disciple and you must take up a cross and follow me or you cannot be my disciple and if you do not, you will meet me in the final judgment and it will glorify God in your destruction. He is pressing you for a decision. He will not be put off. You cannot hit the mute button any longer in your heart. You must answer to Him. Verse 33, so then. Conclusion. None of you can be my disciple. He is saying none of you can be a true Christian. None of you can be in my kingdom. None of you can be in right relationship with me or the Father. None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. What is our Lord saying? He's not backing off. He is increasing the commitment that he is calling for with every line of this section. Well, he's not saying that you have to buy your way into the kingdom of heaven, for none of us have enough gold and none of us have enough silver to ever remove the stain of sin that has defiled our inner soul. What is he saying? Who does not give up all of his own possessions? Well, this must be taken in context with other texts of Scripture. And let me just cut to the bottom line of the bottom line. You must transfer the ownership of all that you are and all that you have to all that He is. That's what He's saying. Your life is no longer your life. It is now His life. Your time is no longer your time. It is now His time. Your possessions are no longer your possessions. They are now His possessions. Your future is no longer your future. It is now His future. Your treasure is no longer your treasure. It is now His treasure. And you have transferred all that you are and all that you have to all that He is. That's what it is to meet His terms of peace. Yet the exchange is not bartered or bought with real money, but it is purchased with the total, complete surrender of your life to Christ. 
That's what saving faith is. It is coming to the end of yourself and completely and entirely entrusting all that you are and all that you have to all that He is. This is your eternal soul. This is the only life you will ever live. This deals with the only eternity you will ever have. And so he says, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, meaning it gives evidence that it was never true salt to begin with, with what will it be seasoned? And the answer is nothing. Verse 35, it is useless either for the soul or for the manure pile. It's just no good to anyone. Not to God, not to Christ, not to the kingdom, not to the movement. You're just taking up a seat for someone else. There were other people who were trying to get into this. It is useless either for the soil. You're not even worth the toilet. Spiritually speaking, because you have not come to the place of total surrender of your life and supreme allegiance and supreme loyalty to Christ, you have not yet come under the Lordship of Christ and taken up a cross to follow after Him. And then He says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You need to give strictest attention to what God has said in His Son. For God has spoken in His Son to us in this conference. And God has brought every one of us to this place. Not a one of us is here by accident or by happenstance. And it is the goodness of God and the mercy of God that has brought you to this place where you have heard of Isaiah 53. You have heard of the suffering Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who upon that cross became sin for us. Upon that cross, He died to self that He might live for us and that He might bear our sins and iniquities upon that tree and purchase our salvation. And there is salvation in no other name. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And he is calling out to you today. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will take you in and receive you unto myself. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And you shall find rest for your souls, for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. It is, it is. You will have the weight of sin lifted off of you. And you will have now the yoke of Christ upon you. And He gets into that yoke with you. And He pulls with you. But it will require the total commitment of your life to Him. Oh, how we ought to search our hearts here today. Have I come to this place of total commitment in my life? Have I yielded my life to the sovereign lordship of Him who died upon the cross for me? I want you to know that the gates of paradise have been swung open to you. 
and the narrow gate is open. And if you will take a step of faith and come through this narrow gate and commit your life to Him, despite the strength of His words, He also says, Him who comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. He's calling you today to come, to come to Him, to take a step of faith and to come to Him. But if you come to Him, don't play games. You must surrender to Christ. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we thank you uh, especially for this, these words we've heard in the last few moments. And I know they're very powerful words. And Father, only you know the hearts of each one that's gathered here today. But Lord, I pray that you would draw all men to yourself. That you would press us to make that commitment to you even now in the quietness of this moment, that we wouldn't allow another minute or hour or day to pass. If you have questions about anything you've heard this morning, I pray that you would seek me out or Ken, Bob, maybe someone you came with. Because what you've heard this morning is the truth of the gospel, and that truth will set you free when you put your faith and trust in it. And for us believers, I just pray that we would be reminded that we are called to a life of suffering, a life of toil, a life of anguish, work and sweat for the glorious gospel of Christ. We're not saved into an armchair of grace and ease that we're to work every moment for the glorious Savior that saved our our hearts and our souls. And and so, Father, we just, as your church, we repent. And we pray that you would change our attitude, that you would give us a renewed commitment. And, Lord, we thank you for your grace that so many times puts up with our misplaced priorities and our attitudes that do not honor you. And yet in your grace, you freely offer forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation. We thank you for that. And we pray that you'd bless us as we leave this place this morning, that we would uh, depart with the song in our hearts. And yet that we would not forget the soberness of the message we heard this morning. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus name. Amen.